Kaiju FM. Come find your niche. Welcome to this week's episode of The Prestige, a podcast about films made by film lovers for film lovers. We each week take a different movie and we look at it from various angles with a bit of a review and then talk about it in terms of different themes or ideas. And at the moment we're into season four and we're looking at different genres of filmmaking and we're focusing on the vampire genre at the moment, so more of that later. And after talking about each film, we generally end with recommendations for other films to watch based on the film of the week. And we start with what else we've been watching at the moment. So, Rob, what have you been watching? I am currently in the run-up to Halloween, which is now about six seven weeks away um i always like to try and in october itself watch a movie series uh, which i haven't got to yet and i'll get to that obviously as we get into october but currently i'm kind of just get my get my week going get some horror movies going getting into some sort of things i've been sitting on my to watch list for a while and i haven't got around to um so this week i caught up with the film from this year camp wedding essentially it's a slasher movie set at a traditional kind of american summer camp um, in the sort of stream of all manner of horror movies. But the twisted time being, they are now adults, it's now an Airbnb, um, and it's a wedding. It's the night before the wedding, and the bride and her bridesmaids and the groom and the groomsmen are being picked off by some sort of masked unknown killer. It is set today, so it is filled with smartphones and texting and Instagram and all of that kind of gubbins that a modern day has. And it does in- involve that stuff quite well, but ultimately, this is not a good film. It has three out of ten on IMDb. And I think I gave it somewhere in the similar range of two to three out of ten. There came a point where in this movie, I hated all of the characters so much. I was just looking forward to them dying. Just so they would stop talking. Um, it wasn't a hate watch because... There was some really, between sort of the production design and some of the uh, visual effects where there was really good work, but it was just full of insufferable idiots. And you know how like like Scream came along and changed the big game for horror and like the kind of postmodernist, the idea that you need to know, like you can't make a movie where people haven't seen horror movies. And like, you, you have to, people have to, have to, you know, know how to do these things and like be clever with it. And they just weren't, they were just idiots absolute idiots walking off by themselves and it was just unrelenting miserable people who i just wanted to die so yeah it earns it earns the rating it has and uh, i'm always a champion for the dog movie that often doesn't get enough love I, I wear that badge with pride but this time it i'm not going to what about you sam anything nicer for us yes i have uh, my wife and i watched a number of um, throwaway travel documentaries as you tend to do when you haven't got the brain power to watch anything else at 8 o'clock at night and one of the um, 
There's so many comedians seem to be going to far fun places with their relatives. But the couple of series we've been watching recently are the most recent two series of Jack Whitehall, Travels of My Father. Now, this, I mean, if you don't like Jack Whitehall, then don't watch it. Uh, I should say, first of all. Um, I'm not always a huge fan of Jack Whitehall, but I generally find him quite funny. And something that really stood out for me, particularly these last two series, is how open he is about his love for his father. And those sorts of shows can kind of sometimes be a bit jokey in kind of a, I'm going travelling with my, with my dad. Isn't it funny? Different generations. Particularly, mm-hmm. I mean, Jack Whitehall is under 30 and his dad is 77. So there's a huge generation gap. So lots of things like that will make a big thing of that. But it, it goes a bit further than that. And Jack Whitehall is very... They, they both are quite open about their relationship. And I found that quite, it was quite uplifting and very emotional at times so yes if you don't like it like and don't watch it but if you do then it, it's worth an hour or two of your time excellent excellent i i haven't seen it but i know that i know that evening lull of like i can't think about things night my go-to obviously cookery shows mm, yes but uh, i do i understand the allure of a a good travel documentary or both didn't um Asi Broder do kind of both? Ticks both those boxes. The Venn diagram of interest overlaps quite strongly there. Yes. So as Sam said, each week we pick a movie and we talk about that movie in depth. We're currently going through a little mini season in our four, our fourth big season, but our second mini season within season four. We are doing the history of the vampire movie. So we started way back in the 1910s and 20s. And we've got all the way through to the 1990s. And we are picking up with the 1998 action horror movie Blade. You better wake up. The world you live in is just a sugar-coated topic. There is another world beneath it. The real world. thousands of years they have existed among us you keep your eyes open they're everywhere chances are you've seen them yourself and didn't know it a secret nation our livelihood depends on our ability to blend in with a lust for power we should be ruling the humans these people are our food starring wesley snipes written by david s goyer and written by stephen norrington Blade is a Marvel comic book action movie based on the Blade character invented in the 70s in the Tales of Dracula number 10, I believe. It tells the story of Wesley Snipes playing Blade, the Daywalker, who is a half-vampire, half-human vampire hunter. And he comes up against Deacon Frost, who is a, a vampire, a turned vampire, who is trying to make a play for power and superiority in the vampire world it is very much an action film which i think a new thing for us not let me watch here it is very much a 90s action movie and it is in many ways the birth of the modern comic book movie i'm sure we'll touch more on that later 
Now, Sam and I, we probably saw this together back in the 90s uh, when it first came out. But I'm intrigued, Sam, watching this back. We're looking at, what, 30, 20 years later now? 20 years later. How has Blade aged for you? It's aged really well. I was thinking, I, okay, because on the same I love this film. Um, mm. But also, I was just thinking a couple of, there are a couple of points where you think, okay, a smartphone would be as interesting. You mentioned camp wedding, actually. There are a couple of moments where you think, okay, a smartphone would be used there, or Instagram would be used there, mm. or whatever, some, something to do with social media. But it, it, really didn't age all that badly at all. There were a mm. couple of times when you saw um, computer terminals, either the Whistler was working at or in Deacon Frost's um, hideout, but you thought, okay, well, that's a bit dated. But to be honest, it was it was much better than I thought it was going to be. I, th- I thought, I mean, I, I loved it in... 96, but I generally thought, well, like you say, you know Blade is a Marvel property and you think, well, the MCU was a sort of reboot and they would have done things much better, so they probably want to forget about it and it, let's just brush it under the carpet a bit. But actually, it was, it was really good. I really enjoyed it. I'm I'm so glad because that was exactly my reaction to it as well. Um, I had the same thing. I remember this is like a, a a great action movie, a great kind of martial arts movie um, f- from my youth. And going back to it, I was a bit like, you know, the '90s can be hit and miss when it comes to action movies. Um, Wesley Snipes obviously has been hit and miss with movies, and even the Blade franchise itself, the three movies we got have been hit and miss. So I, I was a little reticent, a little little worried going back into it, but. You're right. Like this movie is just genuinely great. Mm. Wesley Snipes is at his peak charisma. Um, it is kind of in that kind of. It's a very nineties film, so it features you know underground raves to electric uh, industrial dance music. It is very kind of grimy. It's very of New York City and that kind of feeling of it. But yeah, it's genuinely good. Um, Stephen Dorff is brilliant as Deacon Frost. Very sort of. For a scenery chewing very kind of over the top in his style but it just kind of works and the film is just full of great moments really great like fist pumping action scene movements and you and i've often decried this sort of the the ending of most mcu movies has kind of become superheroes punching things mm. um and kind of a mass of cgi and you get lost in the spectacle. The spectacle's brilliant, but it's just kind of, it's too much. Whereas this, I get that there is some CGI, and some of that CGI hasn't aged well, but the climax of this film is literally him and Stephen Dorff with swords fighting. It, it, it is a tactile, grounded experience, as much as it can be in this kind of superhero, supernatural, vampire world. The ending really kind of works. You are really invested. You do feel every slice and hit and kick and... You know, Blade's solution to these things, he's obviously very talented and very strong, but he's also clever and he's inventive and thinks things through. And, you know, things come back, for the, 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 the things you see early on that pay off again and again and again. Um, I really liked it. It was full of, like, amazing little side parts. You know, Quinn, the sort of vampire flunky, was is a great value for Muddy um, as, like, an over-the-top um, henchman. 
I just thought it was, yeah, it was, I was genuinely like blown away by how good I thought this movie is. It's great. It's just a great movie. Mm. And one thing particularly about this film is, and it's one of the reasons why I like a lot of the smaller um, kind of Marvel TV series that Netflix have done, that they're often very grounded mm. in the, I don't know, the, whatever it is, the sort of grimy New Yorkness of lots of these things. It's the milieu that these things take place in. So I love Jessica Jones because, yes, she's super powered and she hits things very hard. But at the same time, she has to walk down the road to buy a paper. Mm. And and it's, I mean, it's sort of grimy and there are homeless people on the street and you just feel, I, I don't know, it's watching something like Doctor Strange or Avengers, I mean, it's, it's great because it's a big budget Hollywood film and, mm. and it's made to be great. That's fine, but you just you come out of it and you think, well, okay, yeah, that that was that was fine. That was fun, two and a half hours, whatever. But I, I don't feel I'm left with much after it. And these some of these Marvel TV series and this film in particular it just felt that it had that sort of impact, and it's because. It felt not quite finished, sort of a bit rough and gritty and just more real. I know there are moments of, like like you said, there are moments of CGI, but it did, it did feel much more real. I think the phrase that I, I would use, it feels lived in. In mm, a way that some, yes. especially, I mean, I would often say some of the, probably some of the Iron Man and maybe the Captain America movies don't feel lived in. Everything feels like shiny and lovely. I think I would say that Guardians, I think, walk that line really well of feeling like fantastical, but also lived in. And yeah. this this does feel lived in. You know, the Whistler is using beaten about technology, and everything feels kind of like it's been there for twenty years. And you know, the the vampire world, the vampire law they establish here, um, is it feels built upon not everything explained early through like, like the the big exposition bits that you get from whistler and blade happen about you know, 20 minutes of the movie just mm-hmm. on that note i will say this is one of probably one of the best opening sequences in a movie i've seen for ages the opening sort of i suppose the, the tension the dread that comes from like the feeling that he's get that the the two people heading into the club are heading to something sort of wrong and giving you know it's a vampire film but the rave seems brilliant, and then like the blade introduction was like absolutely amazing, sort of a sort of a superhero moment. And then the fight, like we often lament how when it comes to Spider Man or Batman, we're same told the same origin story over and over again. We always see, you know, the the um the Waynes die in front of cinema. We always see Uncle Ben die, and. This, like, you jump in, like, down the line you find out what happened and why um, he is who he is. But, like, you jump straight into him being a superhero and being that kind of vampire hunter and being a good one. Like, the, the, it isn't about him overcoming, like, you know, personal doubt. or like, He's just, like, he is what he is throughout. And I think there's, for me particularly, there's an enjoyment in watching a movie where someone is just kick-ass and 
continue to kick ass. He doesn't go through a, a sort of moral panic. He doesn't go through a crisis of conscience. He doesn't go through, oh, I'm not powered and now I become powered. This isn't an origin story. It isn't even like a personal demon story. This is a literal vampire hunting movie. Mm. I would also, this occurred to me, and maybe you can correct me wrong, but I don't think I am. This is the first movie where we've really seen, I suppose, a vampire community. I'm trying to think of the movies we've done, but I can't think. I think so, yes. We've done lot, yeah, lots and lots of, sort of individuals. Yeah, the, the lone vampire or that kind of thing. Um, I mean, you can't believe with Gander and Hess, you did have two vampires. But it wasn't like here where there's clearly an established operational vampire society that has everything from like a, like a high parliament to archives mm. to librarians to rave clubs. And like, it's interesting that that kind of, I don't know, the 90s was kind of the, maybe the peak of subculture in our world, the idea of the Generation X and the sort of subculture movement was a big explosion in the 90s. And I think you can see that echoed in this movie that we do suddenly vampires goes from being obviously animalistic and being a agent of horror, but also a subculture, almost like a, you know, this kind of urban fantasy style of like the other New York City in which, you know, he literally says to him, like, there's, there's a world you don't know and this is it. And, you know, you see that in movies like Neverwhere and that kind of, you know, idea that there is this secondary world underlaid on the world you know it's like it's a matrix idea very much the same thing like this the world you know is one world but there is a whole other layer to it and this is it it's really interesting you mentioned the matrix there because he does there there is a point well when spoiler territory here for those listening i'm saying but um when whistler is close to death and he speaks to Blade through his injuries from the chair. He calls him mm. the chosen one. And there were, I made a note of that. I thought, well, is this Christian in tone? Is it to do with, to do with the Messiah? And then I thought, well, no, it doesn't really feel like that. It, but it does kind of feel like the Matrix. And I wondered, I don't know, there, there is that, and the Matrix sort of similar, well, within within five years, this idea that um, someone as a Christ figure gets, I, I don't know, presented in a mm. different way in popular culture. I'm not sure, it, it seem, seems to mean something slightly different. And maybe it's to do with that idea of, of subcultures coming to their, like you said, being at their peak at this time. I mean, I, I think for me, I think that relates. I think you see a lot of these kind of, you know, messiah-esque chosen one figures. Um, I think a lot of it is to do with sort of the, the the years, the millennium. The millennium is coming. And that was obviously casting you know, 2,000 years since, in theory, the birth of Christ. And so... That was in the sort of the zeitgeist a lot, the idea of, of the Christian figure, because a lot of culture was dominated on the you know, Judeo-Christian calendar of the time and the anniversary of that. So I, I saw a lot of it to that. Um, but I do I think when you say the chosen one, I think one of the yeah. things this kind of comes back to is the, I suppose the idea of vampires as kind of this, I know, this liminal creature that lives somewhere between life and death. 
um, and Blade is somehow a f- almost a more liminal, liminal character in that he's he's straddling the line between humans mm. and vampires. So between life and undead, he's somehow a living undead or undead liver. And it's like he's that's why he's this chosen one because the, the nature of his of his suppose his birth and his powers is so unusual. And that gives him, I suppose, this sort of secret, unusual power to do things that others can't. There's a reason why, you know, Whistler can't do this without Blade. Because Blade, as this this person of, of power, because of his liminal nature, means that he he's able to do this. Um, and, and this I mean, this is where I'm, I'm going to go off the deep end, guys, a little bit in terms of my analysis. Um, so bear with me. I think the thing it's the thing that really struck me. One of the things that really struck me is the scene in which Blade, quite not viciously but over the top, beats up a cop. The cop is a familiar of of Deacon Frost, and mm. all I could think about when watching that was the Rodney King riots in LA. You know that was what ninety two ninety that was. So six years later, we're looking. We, we had a scene in which a black guy is beaten up and you no know, beaten by these cops and sort of you know. It became this sort of focal point and this touch paper to a lot of problems in America. And then here we are down the line, we're seeing a black guy beat up a cop. And there was this idea that came around my head of like, the film felt felt very multicultural in its depiction of characters and its depiction of the world that lives in. So vampires, human, everybody, like, there was never any, like, here's, like, these were all white or all black, or it was almost not over-the-top multicultural, but in terms of, like, everything was every, everything was every race. And that was great, but like, it felt very, very mixed. And so I suppose I'm, I've am viewing this movie through the idea of, like, race relations and class relations and the idea of that Blade as this kind of, I suppose, transition figure who can help the oppressed so if you view it this way the vampires who are powerful and can kind of do what they want and then you've got the little humans as the the oppressed class and whether you want to view that as you know the one percent 99 percent and however you want to do that split be it white or black or rich or poor um that blade somehow has almost the power of the oppressor but is on the side of the oppressed. His 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 liminal state means he's kind of both, but chooses to side with the oppressed. But also the flip side of that is is Deacon Frost himself. There's a whole lot of movies about the fact that he doesn't get on with the vampire hierarchy because he's a turned vampire, he's a born vampire. Um, and there's a lot of tension there. So his his liminal state between the two, he isn't quite full vampire, he isn't quite, uh, he isn't human anymore, but his reaction, rather than siding with the oppressed, is to become the most oppressing oppressor. He, his reaction to that, that power mm. dynamic is to go full the other way and become more oppressive than the vampires. Vampires are like, you know, we've got a balance, we've got a deal, you know, we, we, here we are, we, you know, we say to the shadows, we have a deal with the, the politicians. He's, he's like, no, screw that, I'm going to eat them all. His reaction to being in the middle of that pile, in, in, in caught between these two worlds, is to try and jump over the world. I think that was a very interesting kind of 
for me particularly looking at it, like this idea that if you want to look for deep meaning here, the idea that if you have, I suppose, that that kind of the privilege that and the power that Blade has and Deacon Frost has, that your hero is the one who sides with the oppressed against the oppressor rather than Deacon Frost. Now, I agree that that's a, you know, this is a 90s MCU vampire action movie, and I'm reading some deep things into there, but I just think that it was very interesting that there's a lot in this movie, for an action movie, there's a lot in this movie about who belongs where, and the big scene between, you know, Deacon Frost and Blade was a lot about, you know, join us, you know who one of them, they think of this of you, they think this of you. There's a lot in the movie about that. I'm sorry, yeah, it's really interesting listening to you there, because I was drawn to um, the scene with Deacon Frost mm. and the sort of vampire council or whatever it was, when they're mm. basically bullying him. And and this, the, the leader is saying, well, mm. you wouldn't know, you're not of pure blood. And this kind of goes back to what we talked about when we saw about um, when the Harry Potter films, mm. like pure blood identity and mud blood and things like that. But I found myself as a viewer knowing that Deacon Frost, I knew Deacon Frost was the bad guy, like from the start. But I know who Deacon Frost is. But in spite of that, mm. I just found myself siding with him. I found myself feeling sorry for him. Because he's being bullied by people in a, like, what's a sort of a metaphor mm. for a kind of racist way. Like, other, other people doing that in history have done it in particularly racially motivated ways. And you think, well, you can kind of understand what Deacon Frost does. You can... Like, like you were saying, he sort of flips to being the, the most oppressive of the oppressed, but you kind of, I can kind of understand what he was doing. And I don't know whether it's, it's like you said, Stephen Dawes' charisma is brilliant acting, but I never really felt like... like there are some mm. villains who you just turn against and you don't like at all, and the mechanics of the film work by getting you as you mm. to hate the villain, like the, like the hero is supposed to. This didn't feel that, it seems strange to say, what you were saying, but this doesn't feel that black and white. Like there's part of the audience that is rooting for Deacon Frost because he is partially the oppressed as well, and he has been tormented and abused by people in positions of power in the vampire world. And that was something that really struck me. It was really interesting. No, I, I like what you're saying there, because I also think it's something about, if you look at the characterization of Deacon Frost, um, in that he is, I suppose in many ways, styled on the traditional white male hero. He yeah. is, you know, open shirt, and he's kind of cool quips, and he is, is a good-looking man who throws cool parties. Like, he is... Very much about him, he he's the, the the look of the hero of any other movie. You know, you can see you know him and Tony Stark are not too far apart. No. He's smart. He's clever. Um, he lounges shirtless for computers. Like he's he is ticking all those symmetric boxes of being a cool guy. He's a cool guy. You know, he doesn't look at explosions. He's just he's a cool man doing cool things. And so like, they do play that. Like he is. 
he's coming up against these stuffy old shirts of of the vampire hierarchy. So I think that he's just, you know, I mean, he is clearly a terrible, terrible person, just horrible, horrible things. But through the charisma and that styling, you do end up feeling not so. He basically he doesn't feel unrepentantly bad, um, mm. and I think that's as interesting filmmaking and from the filmmaker's point of view to do that. And it's like, like you were saying, like there's something about Blade that isn't wholly good. Mm. I mean, he loses it going going to town on this cop, and a hero doesn't do that. And in the same way that the villain doesn't have anything good about it. And like, you know, the, the Deacon Frost to say to him, you know, you're an animal. Like they think of you as animals. That all the humans, think, and at a certain point, all the humans are the audience. You know, mm. we see him struggling with addiction. We see him battling his demons. Uh, you know, we see him being overly vicious and overly violent. Like he is, he is a brutal killer. Um, and he is, and they are obviously vampires, but he is a vicious person um, who kills remorselessly. So it's like it is. It's not, but it's a wonderful shades of grey. And especially giving you like Deacon Frost, like the thing that came back to me, like Deacon Frost felt like, I suppose, a bit like a slave owner. Not only they own their familiars, but the interaction with him and, and Blade's mother, in which he's clearly kept her as some sort of pet. You know, he, he, he's dressed all in white. She keeps her in a like, all white room. She wears all white. And it's like this sort of submerging of her, of her blackness into his white world. And so he is this, like, on paper, a terrible, terrible person who you should not have any kind of sympathy for because he is, you know, he kills everybody, you know, he remorselessly kills, always tries to kill that you know, small girl, school girl in the sort of the big scene with Blade. But he has that element of kind of winking charisma, I think really lifts that character from being a, like a one-note bad guy um, to being more in the same way that Quinn kind of doesn't, like Quinn is, like, is, is a bad, bad character and you don't feel that same kind of are shuckless to him because he's just unrelentingly bad. Mm. Um, and I think it's interesting work trying, not, I don't think humanizing is the wrong word, but the film certainly uses like the tropes and sort of the all interpretations of looking at a character and trying to read the signs of their dress and their styles to give them clues. They use that to try and tr- not trick you, but lead you to a place in which it isn't so black and white. Hmm. Yeah. One other thing I want to talk about before we finish is is the look of this mm. film. One of the ways this film is so good is, I mean, we talked earlier about how the, the characterization works really well and the way it's directed is really clever, but the way it's shot is brilliant. Like, you have Karen Blade crossing a bridge in a car and the shot's kind of overexposed mm. and you feel a bit like we're sensitive to sunlight. Like, are we turning mm. the same way that Karen is? And like, although these clever things with like car chase graphics being sped up at one point and then when Blade and Deacon are having their conversation, the world slows mm. down. So you experience what it's like to be different from mm. the humans. And the look of this film is really, really innovative. No, I, I agree. I think the thing that really hit me, as you nailed it on the head there, is kind of the speed ramps and the slowdowns that it employs. And you're right, that does, it kind of puts you in the position of people in the world. So the speed ups, are like you, you're, you're someone watching this world happen, you're watching the people drive around, you're watching the, 
vampire world happen at like twice the speed and the slowdowns you're in blade's head you're in deacon frost's head you're seeing it as they see it where they can react and think a lot faster than we can that kind of speed that it gives them but i think i think i'd like to draw a little parallel between two scenes because a lot of the film happens at night a lot of the film happens in the darkness obviously being a vampire film but there are two notable scenes of sunlight um which are as you mentioned the one coming over the bridge into sort of the sunlight there and the very last scene i suppose if you exclude the kind of the postscript tag that we see um the and they're both basically of like them in sunlight and if you look at them again the one you see the first one you see it's kind of blinding it's cold it's like being bright it feels cold it's like going down it's into the blues rather than the oranges it's very kind of washed out and you're right it feels like harsh and unwelcoming and unrelenting like a bad thing as she's starting to turn but the last scene when they, when they kind mm. of get out of the um the final battle with deacon and they kind of climb out and like, that sunlight is warm it is orangey it feels like feels like, like a relief um and you can compare those two scenes like the one at the end is much warmer it's got proper black it's, rather than being sort of more washed out it's got color it's got warmth to it and that gives you this feeling of I suppose, like relief and a safe sunshine rather than sort of the imposing, aggressive one of earlier. Mm. So, Rob, I feel like we could talk for a long time about Blade. Mm. It's a brilliant film. Um, Buzz, do you have any recommendations for us this week? I do, I do. I've got two films to recommend this week, um, both actor links. Um, this film is filled with amazing bit parts from second characters. Um, as it's been a bit of a Badment of riches to try and find recommend from them my first one is i talked about like a bit which is quinn played by a great actor called uh, donald Logue, i think his name was um he's popped up in lots of things over the years um but he first came to sort of my knowledge back in after this film um arthur saw him again in a film from 2000 called the tower of steve he plays the main guy, lead guy, someone called Dex, and he is a overweight, quite schlubby, I suppose, teacher um, who is a winning hit with the ladies. Um, and it's all down to his Tower of Steve, in which he embraces the philosophies of Steve McQueen and different famous Steves, so Hawaii Five-0, um, Six Million Dollar Man, all these famous Steves through sort of pop culture. And it's his, his zen-like system for seduction. And it's about him kind of dealing with that and overcoming that and sort of the... It's a slight comedy, but in kind of a very black-toned, wet-down way. He is great in it, in that kind of confident, but also somehow marking a deep insecurity. Um, he's, yeah, he's just, he's great in it. It's a film that kind of made a big splash when it came out, but no one's really heard of since. Um, so if you like him in this, and or you like good movies, I suppose, I would put in a big shout for that one. My second um, film is from 2012. Another character popped up, and Sam mentioned him already, um, the leader of the vampire world, uh, was played by a character called Udo Kia, who has been in more movies than I care to think about. He is one of those guys who popped up in a lot of things. Um, and he popped up as the current Führer in the 2012 film Iron Sky. If you haven't seen Iron Sky, essentially it is the story of 
The secret Nazis who hid on the dark side of the moon and are now forming a fourth Reich to come and invade Earth. It is silly. It is funny. It is exploitative. It is brilliant. He is he's the current Führer of this fourth Reich. Um, and it's about them coming to Earth and uh, them dealing with the changes in the world since the World War. There was a sequel, I think, a few years later called Iron Sky, The Coming Race, um, which is equally um, madcap and over the top. Um, and I, ju- I just really dig it. So the effects in this are really good. It was made on a low budget, but it kind of comes out looking like top trumps. Um, once again, not for everybody. These kind of films I recommend aren't for everybody, but I, I really, really dug Iron Sky. What about you, Sam? Well, I have two as well. Um, one is I'm making this nation for a number of reasons. One is the fact that I just love saying Mahershala Ali's name, so I'm just going to say it again. Um, Blade is played by Mahershala Ali in like an upcoming MCU reboot, so this film predated the MCU by a decade and the MCU sort of cashing in on the success of the Wesley Snipes venture, I suppose, but also sort of completist. Um, they're including Blade in their canon. And Marshall Ali was an important figure in the sadly now defunct TV series Luke Cage which I would put along with Jessica Jones as one of those I was talking earlier about the sort of grimy, gritty, real presentation of New York. So that's my first recommendation this week. My second is, um, well, it's not a film at all. Um, Stephen Norrington, who directed Blade, also directed the absolutely terrible 2003 film The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen now don't watch that what I want to recommend great recommendation don't watch this what I want to recommend is not that film but the source material Uh, the original graphic novel particularly the first volume I think the film was based on the first volume but to be honest I couldn't bring myself to watch the film it looks so terrible um, anyway, that original graphic novel is brilliant. So the first volume from 1999, but they're all good. Um, Alan Moore and Kevin O'Neill. Um, the Leave Extraordinary Gentleman, which is, I think, was, was still going this year. In fact, they've been putting out issues for 20 years, but the, certainly the, the first volume is very good. So those are my two this week. Excellent, excellent. Well, that was Blade, folks, and uh, that moves us from the 90s into the 2000s. And we are picking up with possibly the biggest film on our series and possibly the biggest vampire film ever made. Certainly, the- Can I just apologise for, for what's about to happen? Because when we decided what we were going to do, a good 10 weeks ago, I thought it would be a brilliant idea to do this film because, like Rob says, it's one of the biggest films I've made, certainly the biggest vampire film I've made, so it's a culturally important film for us to include Mm. in this series. So I thought, 
Brilliant. Yeah, let's do that. Thought no more about it until this week, but I thought, oh God, we're going to have to watch it. We are watching the 2008 film Twilight, based on the yeah. romance fantasy novel of the same name. So we'll go in with eyes open, guys, and hearts open to fall in love with this film. Um, but yeah. uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we don't give it as glowing a review as we have done Blade. You can mm. find it, I'm sure, anywhere you find movies. Till then, guys, you can find both of us online at Presley Podcast. You can find just me at Life underscore Academic. And you can find just me at Kaiju FM. And we'll see you here in two weeks.